James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bare tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. Do you know what I can do with my little finger? Hello everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 24. This vital podcast provides a vehicle for our vocalised veneration of the valiant, virtuous, versatile provocateur who's at the vanguard of vanquishing vindictive visionary villains. Yes, it's the ever-victorious James Bond 007. A very warm welcome inside the cubbyhole this week. We hope you're all doing well. The writing's been on the wall for a while, but this episode does indeed mark our final review of an official Bond adventure. You do now have the full catalogue to choose from, so if you've missed any of our previous 23 reviews from Dr. No all the way through to Skyfall, uh, or if you're new around here and you've only just discovered the podcast, then do feel free to go back and listen at your pleasure. We're incredibly grateful for all of your support, so do also consider leaving us a review on your podcasting app of choice. As well as all that, you can get in touch with the show through all the usual social media channels. If you type in our show title on Facebook and Instagram, you'll be able to find us very easily. Or over on Twitter, we have the shorter handle of More Cubby. So uh, head on over there for show updates, quizzes, and more. And if you uh, have a Bond question or topic you'd like us to discuss, you can send us a direct message on any of those social media accounts or on the relatively old-fashioned way of via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com, and we'll slot your idea into a future Q-branch, i.e. the questions branch segment. Now, in our last episode, we discussed Bond number 23, Skyfall. In our opinion, uh, an engrossing entry into the series, marking the emotional end for Judy Dench's M, and interestingly, one of the few times Bond has failed in his primary mission objective. Uh, of course, we did spot some of the, the glaring potholes in the story as well, but uh, we, we were forgiving of those because uh, the film just looked so damn good. Uh, so uh, did Daniel Craig's fourth outing as Bond deliver an equally powerful punch? Let's find out as we delve into Bond 24, Spectre. Now, unlike Agent C, I could never be brought in on the grounds of having poor taste in Friends, because as ever, I'm joined by the delightful Cubbyhole hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who's like a kite dancing in a hurricane. It's our very own Topolino. It's Phil. How are you, mate? Very good. Thank you, Martin. Looking forward to this week's episode as ever. Um, as we always do at this time, obviously, just really quickly to run through um, your shout outs. So going on to Facebook, um, a huge thanks to Andrew Davey, um, who's actually been in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram as well, just to recommend the show. Gavin Clark was mentioned that he's really happy with um, what he's heard of us so far. He particularly enjoyed the um, comparisons between Silver and Christopher Walken in our Skyfall episode. Um, and also to Chris Hicks, who's been um, very intrigued by our quizzes at the end of each show. Um, and just to really quickly go, probably my favourite tweet so far this week, um, Ollie Reese, who got in touch with the show, um, he is a fan of the episodes he's listened to so far. He was mentioning that... Um, he was intrigued by our comments about the Neen Valley Railway and he hopes that it returns um, in a future film. Phil, perhaps you could drop a line to the, the Neen Valley Railway and see if we could record a special episode from there where we just talk about the two sequences that were filmed there. We do a sort of special on Octopussy and Goldeneye live from the Neen Valley Railway. I think that could be an option, yeah. I think that's that's an idea for the future. I'll, I'll get on the uh, 
the sponsorship train with uh, Neen Valley Railway, and we can do a we'll do a special episode from uh, from there. Okay, very nice. And uh, secondly, it's the man who's everywhere, everywhere. He's sitting at your desk. He's kissing your lover. He's eating supper with your family. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm really good. I enjoyed that impression. I think that was a little bit uh, better than my um, my uh, Mr. White. I might have to drop that into um, Alan Partridge's bit. I'm very good. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm more exhausted by the fact that we're now 24 films in or that I'm exhausted because I'm still recovering from mine and Phil's epic quiz tussle last week, which we cut it down quite a lot for the podcast. But in real time, it did take several hours uh, to get there, in which we named pretty much every um, secondary policeman, henchman, pilot and lab technician that was in the film. Yeah, I guess you're pleased that uh, I haven't done the credits quiz for every single one of my quizzes. I could, I could have done that, but uh, I thought the, the traditional style is probably better. And let's not forget, this week I'm doing the quiz, so it's only going to get worse. Martin, you thought your credits quiz was bad, but this week it's going to get even more tenuous. Well, we'll look forward to that as ever. But for now, let's go over to Adam and Alan for the film synopsis. Yes, thank you very much, Martin. So, Spectre, the 24th James Bond film and the first appearance in the series for Bond's arch nemesis since Diamonds Are Forever in 1971. So Sam Mendes returns for his second consecutive Bond film, Daniel Craig for his fourth, and uh, accompanying them, two of Christopher Nolan's key collaborators, Hoyter Van Hoytema on cinematography and Lee Smith editing, and playwright Jez Butterworth accompanies uh, the trio of writers who penned Skyfall. Spectre was released in October 2015. That's 27 years after Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Spectre was made on a budget of estimated $245 million, making it one of the single most expensive films ever made, and it went on to gross $880.7 million, so not a success on quite the same level as Skyfall, but also not too far off it. So, to find out what happens in this incredibly expensive film, let's hand over to Alan. Daniel Craig's finally down the gun barrel. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Bond ditches a Mexican floozy to chase a shifty Italian through a carnival, then stupidly punches a chopper pilot in the face in mid-air. Cue the title starring Sam Smith and a massive octopus. Bond gets sneered at by Lord Voldemort and Moriarty. The double O program's prehistoric. Watches a Beyond the Grave exposition tape from Her Majesty Dame Judi Dench and nicks a brand new Aston off Paddington Q. In Rome, Bonding sensitively cops off with the widow of the shifty Italian who bumped off right after the guy's bloody funeral, Gate crashes an Armani-sponsored Spectre meeting and interrupts Moneypenny Action Hero from getting some poontang while ditching Paddington Q's Aston. After helping boringly named Paddy Mr. White cut short his drawn-out Litvinenko death, you are kite dancing in a hurricane, Mr. Barnes. Bond rescues his Kate Moss look-alike very French daughter Madeleine Swan from a teetotal glasshouse with cheap-looking shutters by smashing up half of Austria's alpine farm sheds. In a Tangier's bridal suite, Bond swings some vodka, outstares a mouse, and works out where Spectre's base is after finding a secret stash of You've Been Framed videotapes. Bond and Swan have an adrenaline fueled train shag after getting knocked about by The Rock's short, ugly cousin before coming face to face with Bloody Blowers, who weirdly is also Bond's dicked off brother or something. And the offer of all your pain, James. Cuckoo. Blowers straps Bond to an extreme acupuncture machine, but Bond literally shoots one tiny gas tank and sends the whole desert base sky high. 
Back in London, Lord Voldemort beats Moriarty in a sneering contest. Now we know what C stands for. Careless. Bond Rescue Swamp from Scarface Blower's grotty funhouse decorated with nostalgic printouts, then downs Blower's chopper by once again literally shooting at it once with a tiny pop gun, and runs off with Madders after nicking yet another Aston off Paddington Q. The end. Lovely summary as always. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Alan. So Spectre, a film that is quite divisive among Bond fans. Uh, for me, it's a really solid entry into the series, perhaps not as spectacular or good looking as Skyfall, but uh, nonetheless, a welcome return for old Blowers and his motley Spectre crew. Uh, we get some impressive action sequences as well. Uh, and I think I've mentioned in previous episodes, I do like it when the whole cast are utilized. And uh, in this one, uh, Bond is not just the lone wolf. Uh, he is supported by that network of uh, MQ and Moneypenny, all kind of working together to bring down the outside enemies and indeed the uh, the enemies from within. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm rather satisfied with this film. I think it hits the right Bond notes for me. Uh, I don't quite understand why some some Bond fans hate it, and they seem to hate it with a searing passion, which I'm not quite sure about. But uh, what were your impressions, Phil, of Spectre? Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that it's it's quite a divisive film amongst the Bond community, Martin. Certainly for myself, this when I rewatched Spectre, it was only the second time I'd seen the film, the first time being at the cinema. And having rewatched it, I, I think that some of my my frustrations with it have, have kind of mellowed slightly. But for me, though... I think there are problems in the fact that I think it's trying to do too much in the runtime in terms of trying to cram so much into it and so much story that it kind of becomes lost. You know, I, I was looking back and I was thinking, you know, th there are elements of this film that are quite a slow burn, you know, where it's building up the plot. And there are elements where they're trying to blend the action sequence in it as well. And it, it doesn't quite work for me. Part of the problem is it's, for me, it's too long. I think that two and a half hours for what they were trying to get from the final product is perhaps too long. I think they needed to be more ruthless in the editing and actually take something out. I guess the easiest way for me to describe my, my opinions of this film, it leaves me feeling really cold. It leaves me feeling like it, there's no warmth to this film. There's no, although it's, there's a great cast list, you know, you expect so much from Christoph Waltz and Leah Seydoux and, um, you know, Daniel Craig and, and everybody else that's involved with it. I'm I'm just left feeling a little bit cold by the end product, and it's and it's uh, it's a shame, but it's it's how I feel about the film. I do actually agree with you on a couple of places. I do think there are missteps within the story and the characters, and some of the directions taken, which I'm sure we'll come to in more detail later. Um, but overall, I'm much closer to Martin on this. I find it a really satisfying top grade Bond film. Uh, I do actually disagree with you slightly, Martin, in that I think it is it does have the same visual artistry as Skyfall. It is as intensely cinematic. And I find it, if anything, more spectacular as a film than Skyfall was. Um, but what I really like about it is that it blends that visual artistry back to something which is even more of a traditional Bond film than Skyfall was. This is a proper luxury prestige epic with the action, the spectacle and the humour that we want from classic Bond. Um, and so I really like 
like it. I guess in car terms, it's it's a Rolls Royce. It's not going very quick, but every single component of it has been put together with real luxury and attention to detail and class and sophistication. And so although I think there are certainly flaws with it and things that in trying too hard to blend all of the Craig films into a unified whole, it doesn't quite get right. I still think this is a really prestige A-grade Bond film. I think it looks and to me feels really sophisticated and intelligent and I really rate it highly for that. Yes, I guess it's kind of good we didn't compare every Bond film with a car because uh, Phil could have had a field day, couldn't he? That could have been a separate segment. <laughs> what car do you think this film is, Phil? To, to continue your analogy that this film is a Rolls-Royce, Adam, yes, I'd agree in terms of its feel it is a Rolls-Royce, but the trouble is there are plenty of Rolls Royces over the years that have been pretty dreadful. And this is kind of a Rolls Royce where kind of the, one of the doors has fallen off. It's kind of, it's, it looks a bit shabby. And, so, and the example being, okay, I understand that with modern cinema, it's going more towards, um, you know, green screen and doing a lot more CGI so that we can, so it's that suspension of disbelief. The trouble I have with this film is kind of encompassed probably in the opening scenes I mean, the bit where the building collapses, for example, looks really clunky. And it's just, there are elements of this film that I, I love parts of this film, but it just, there are elements where it falls down for me. Me and Adam are shaking our heads. So uh, let's let's get into that pre-title sequence, which I, I don't think I agree with you, Phil. I'm not sure the CGI looks dreadful in the uh, the beginning um i personally you know that i'm a big fan of live and let die and uh, this was very reminiscent of that the, the carnival atmosphere that we have and also linking i guess with other films like uh, thunderball and uh, moonraker uh, so yeah I, I kind of like that we get that homage to uh, baron samadhi and live and let die with the, the skull mask uh, and i think it just looks it sets you up for an a great adventure i think in this one uh, and i guess if if there's one thing that we've learnt from all of our 24 reviews it's that rarely is there a bad pre-title sequence even if it's a bad film you get a good pre-title and this one was just uh, amazing i thought yeah phil i really take issue with you bringing up the uh, the clunky green screen and, and cgi i think there are certainly moments and you point out the bit with the building where it does look a little unrealistic but if you look at the rest of what's going on in that sequence and at the end of the sequence that is a real helicopter that is flying over all of these genuine hundreds of people. Of course, um, in talking about the opening, it is an opening in which, in the appearance of one shot, of course, it's several stitched together digitally. We see in one single motion Bond leaving the carnival to pursue his mark across the rooftops. And this is a really important thing that Mendes has done as a director. I mean, it's it's incredibly complex and breathtaking. Um, and it's something that he extrapolates into the entire film of 1917, which he released at the beginning of this year. Um, uh, but of course, it's also paying homage to Hitchcock, uh, you know, who was a great influence on the direction of the early Bond films and who did a very similar thing with the film Rope. He stitched lots of shots together, not digitally, but practically in that to make it look like everything was playing out in a single take. But also from the Mexican setting, um, it recalls Touch of Evil, uh, the great Orson Welles film, which has a celebrated one shot opening sequence. It goes on for like five minutes following the progress of a car bomb over the Mexican-American border. And so there's a real cinematic heritage to that one-shot opening and I just think it's such a bravura different way to kind of kick off a Bond film and but keep that sense of spectacle and of, and of tension. Yeah I think I read somewhere it's, uh, there's 1,500 extras I think they use for the uh, the carnival uh, then they I think they did 
supplement it with some CGI to kind of make it look more like 10,000. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd definitely go along with what you said there, Adam, just a, an excellent opening to uh, to this one. And uh, I like that we get uh, little touches of, uh, of comedy as well. We, there is a bit of a uh, Roger Moore feel to this film. Bond is very suave, sophisticated. We've kind of moved a little bit away from the brutality of Casino Royale, uh, but I don't mind so much. So I quite like the when he kind of drops through the building and falls on the the sofa, uh, those little moments, they're not not too much. There's not too much comedy, but uh, what they do have seems to work. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a much funnier film than the other Daniel Craig films, and deliberately so, because as we say, it is really bringing everything back and marrying it more into what a traditional Bond film is. We should also talk about that helicopter fight, because it is an incredible bit of stunt work and a really kind of heart-pumping action sequence. And I think because it combines both the kind of great aerial stunt work that we see in sort of epic Bond films, but also with that sense of a claustrophobic confined fist fight, uh, which, you know, the series has done so well in the elevator fight in Diamonds Are Forever and, of course, the train fight in From Russia With Love. Yeah, apparently there is no Day of the Dead festival as well or parade in Mexico City, but uh, after the release of this film in 2016, they decided to have one. So I think that's testament to how incredible the start of the film is that it's influenced uh, a culture that was already there. And now they started to actually have the parade, I guess, without death defying helicopters flying above them. Yeah, it's quite cool that they've decided to uh, to include something that was, was never there before. And I think it would probably make it more entertaining if you had a, a helicopter fight in between the uh, in between the festival. And it is interesting, of course, that it is specifically a Day of the Dead festival and the film opens with that sequence, The Dead Are Alive, because it's very much a film where, well, pun intended, the spectre of death hangs over it, just as the previous film Skyfall was haunted by the past. There is a real sense of ghosts hanging on the outside of this film. It has a real sepulchral aura to it. And, you know, that that vision, that imagery of skulls kind of recurs throughout. Yeah, I do agree. I think, I think the way that... That sequence is set up. It is a very good way to start the film. I, I do concede that. I think that is a great way. And, and again, as we've already said, the kind of the cinematography that we see throughout, um, you know, it is it is a real credit to the to the obviously to Sam Mendes and to the um, uh, to the production team. There, you know, we mentioned before in the Skyfall episode, there's this great mix of colours and this great mix of you know these panning shots of really wide. So I do concede there are great moments in this film, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm pleased you mentioned the cinematography because I do think Hoyter Van Hoytema does just as good a job with this as Roger Deakins did in the previous film. You've mentioned the use of colours again, the fact that everything in Rome is kind of seeped in gold so that you get a sense of not just the shadowy criminal world, but the wealth of it as well and the money that is changing hands. And also the sort of cold, bleak, white snow uh, surrounding everything as well when we get to uh, Austria and the iciness of that. Uh, and again, in the epic sense of the film, Bond is very deliberately in every shot dwarfed by these environments. He appears tiny at times to show you the scale of what he's up against almost. And yet Hoyter brings with him, like I guess, the severity of look that he, that he has in Nolan's recent films, but also the murkiness and, and the sort of of that kind of tangible atmosphere that he brought to Thomas Alfredson's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, so and I, I think his work visually just really complements this film and everything that Mendes is doing as a director. And then, of course, we move into the, the actual credit sequence. We get uh, Sam Smith's rather epic song. I think a, a good choice. I can see Phil wincing at that suggestion, so we'll, we'll go over to him <laughs> soon. But uh, I, I really love the song. It fits well with the, uh, the tone of the film. Uh, of what we're actually going to 
see Bond do in this film, going back to the the previous enemies that he's had in the past. And I quite like the the way that they you, uh, the way that they do that credit sequence in that they use images from previous Craig adventures. Uh, we haven't seen that kind of style credit sequence since, uh, I guess, since on Her Majesty's when they tried to link together James Bond, Connery's Bond with Lazenby. Uh, and I guess before that, it was also done in Goldfinger as well. But uh, I quite like that. Uh, I mean, I guess that is one of the criticisms people don't like that the stories have been tied together, uh, but I think it works quite nicely in the in the credits. I did wince at the the, Dan, uh, the uh, Sam Smith suggestion. Uh, nothing against Sam Smith. I think he is a brilliant artist. <sighs> the trouble, I don't know what, again, it's just, it should be, It's you should think of it as a Bond song, but I, just, I don't know what it is. I, I, it just doesn't seem to fit for me. And I, don't, I can't put my finger on why it maybe doesn't. I mean, the opening title credits are brilliant. Don't get me wrong. I, I love the way that it's all put together. I think it's one of the best in terms of the design. But for whatever, again, for whatever reason, the song just leaves me feeling a bit cold. See, I do think it completely fits with the tone of the film because I think it's a big epic song, and yet the way Smith sings it has a tenderness and a melancholy, which which suggests that the sadness and 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 again the kind of darkness and that uh, ghostly aspect of the storyline. And it's there in Thomas Newman's wider score as well. That same kind of brooding, soft, um, dark chorals that he brought into the score towards the end of Skyfall. They're much more prevalent in this. Um, Let's move on to, to this thing, because I do think it is a slight flaw in, in the scripting and, and the storyline, that it does try and wrap up all the previous Craig films into a bit too neat a bow. But there's also, I don't know if you guys found this, the fact that the whole big scheme of Spectres is about sort of surveillance and, and the surveillance state. There is something quite interesting about it in that it combines the ideas of terrorism and cyber terrorism and sort of political conspiracy, which are present in each of the three previous films. My problem was it's sort of like Quantum, it's a little bit too realistic like we've seen other more contemporary films deal with this issue you know more substantially and just for Spectre the great mad bonkers criminal organization it feels a little too normal doesn't it it feels to me just a little bit underwhelming for the company that was previously swallowing spaceships and you know hollowing out volcanoes and nicking nuclear weapons. Yeah, but I guess it's of its time, isn't it? I guess it's quite thematic for, for today. I mean, I think if, if you'd have tried to suggest a kind of a, a Roger-style plot point where it's, you know, it's, um, you know, trying to steal a space weapon or something like that, people probably wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been believable as a Daniel Craig film. I, I think that they were probably airing on this side that obviously, you know, that it, and it does raise the question, you know, it's saying, you know, how much, how much freedom should the security service have? I think it's right that the film perhaps tones it down a little bit and, and you know, and, and tries to say, you know, this is probably a real world organisation that's, you know, that probably would be um, funded for criminality. Yeah, I kind of like the big scale that we get of Spectre. Like in previous films, it's just a kind of round table. It's basically just a madman and his cat, isn't it, Bofeld? Uh, whereas this one, it's a bit of a grander sense of a massive organisation that has all of these international links like bond is circling in the in the rafters isn't he of the building and there's people looking down who presumably are part of the organization as well uh, so i like the fact that we get that uh, but then it doesn't yeah i do agree that it perhaps doesn't link together seamlessly with the other main villain of uh, max denby agency uh, so i think there definitely needs to be a stronger con connection doesn't there uh, i think uh, daniel craig only shares one scene doesn't he with andrew scott in the whole film uh, so yeah there's a bit of a disconnect which i think 
is one of the uh, the flaws of this one. Yeah, the, the fact that that surveillance thing is so close to the cyber infiltration that Silver is going for in the previous film, it just kind of means it feels a little bit like we're going over old territory. And actually, my problem with C is that in his scenes with M, they are very much going over the same territory we were in in the last film. They're basically just reiterating all the arguments that M had with Ray Fiennes and later with the parliamentary inquest. But you are very right, Martin. The actual presentation of Spectre, the organisation, is fantastic in the way it's been modernised. I mean, that desert base looks incredibly modern, uh, and yet it crosses kind of that sleek style of Dr. Nose base with the fact that it's in a hollowed out crater. So there's that nice little nod to You Only Live Twice, and it feels big and epic. And also that amazing meeting of Spectre in Rome, which is just fantastic. There's a real Kubrickian coldness to the shooting of that scene, the shadows and the gold. Uh, you know, it, it's almost a bit like eyes wide shut, and it suggests the money that is in that is behind the power of this organization, the wealth. Yeah, and I think I've moved closer to your previous suggestions, Adam, that Blofeld is better in the shadows. I think in this film, he is a bit more menacing in the shadows. And then when he comes into the light, you just think, oh yeah, that that's that goober from Inglorious Bastards, or or there's Stuntman Dave, if you're if you're Phil. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I think he's probably more menacing in the shadows, and he doesn't he's not particularly menacing. I mean, he does have the torture scene, doesn't he? Uh, but I guess that's another area where I'd say there is some weakness. Is you probably I agree with you, Phil. I think you might expect a bit more from Christoph Waltz in this one. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think I think that's probably one of the biggest issues I have with the film is is the fact that I was expecting so much from Christoph Waltz. I was you know such a celebrated actor, and you know I was expecting him almost to kind of take what he'd done with Inglorious Bastards and then kind of turn it up to beyond eleven. You know, obviously that sense of how how menacing and how terrifying he is in in Inglorious Bastards and. And this sense that it, I don't know what it just seems a bit underwhelming in the end. It's, it's sort of you know you expect. I guess maybe it's just the expectation of of how you want those characters to to feel. Christoph Waltz is probably one of the people on this planet who was born to play a Bond villain, and so of course they've cast him as the ultimate Bond villain. But you're right, he can't compete with his own performances that he's given for Quentin Tarantino. I mean, mine. You talked last week about um. You're ever so slightly let down by Javier Bardem as Silver because it's not his performance in No Country for Old Men. And I didn't quite agree with that because I think it's it's so different and so much funnier and more flamboyant that there's clear water between the two. But in this one, because Waltz kind of does the Waltz stick all the time, there isn't that clear water. And so it does feel like an imitation. And yeah, you're absolutely right. As soon as Blofeld is out of the shadows, he loses all of his power, particularly here where he's also compromised by the the brother's storyline and the fact that he's been given this historical emotional connection to bond i mean if you're going to lift plot points from anywhere austin powers in gold member probably isn't the best place to go for the other kind of key villains throughout the film is obviously mr hinks who we first get introduced to um at the spectre meeting in rome um also that quite violent interaction where um he kills his uh, his fellow spectre um representative I think it's quite a breath of fresh air, really, to have Hinks um, as a character. What do you guys think? Do you think he was um, a good addition? He's talked, um, Bautista has, uh, about the character and have taken a lot of inspiration from Odd Job as that kind of stocky but imposing 
powerful, menacing, silent figure. And there is, I guess, a kind of very disturbing through line through um, odd job crushing a golf ball with his bare hands to Gabinda in Octopussy crushing loaded dice with his bare hands to now him just gouging out a guy's eyes into his skull with his bare hands. And so he is very much set up as a more realistic, less comic, much more savage and brutal version of those previous ones. But he gets a fantastic train fight with Bond. I mean, it really does combine the brutality of the From Russia With Love train fight with the sort of smashy up kind of humour of when Jaws and Roger Moore fight on a train in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Adam. I think uh, Dave Bautista gives uh, quite a good performance here. I mean, he only says one word. That's as he's dragged out of the uh, the train uh, but i think as the the silent menacing character i think he does quite well i agree with you i think the train sequence is really good he does beat bond doesn't he essentially until madeline comes and saves him and fires the shot uh, so yeah i think he i think he's quite a good character in there apparently uh, dwayne the rock johnson was uh, in the running for this position which of course would be a nice link back to you only live twice and his grandfather appearing in the in the bond film uh, but uh, yeah, i think uh, quite a, a decent performance here yeah, the train fight is great. And of course, the ending of it is another example of um, the filmmakers deliberately working the comedy back into all the fight sequences to sort of tie it up to more traditional Bond. And yeah, great that Bond isn't just able to outsmart, um, you know, this physically superior villain. He's absolutely worn out and the music flares up towards the end of the fight as Bond is throwing these absolutely exhausted punches. And you really start to feel, oh my God, I don't know actually how he's going to get out of this. And of course, it takes a double teaming with Swan to finally get the better of him and so yeah there's it's a really great handled sequence that one yeah he's even set alight isn't he at one stage and you think well yeah he's going to be taken down by the fire and he's not he just kind of calmly takes his jacket off and continues beating the crap out of bond It'd be interesting to know if they'd handle that character in the same way now, because, of course, Bautista was at the, the beginning, really, of his film career in 2015. Now he's sort of taking leading roles in films and he's become much more of a Schwarzenegger in terms of someone who can blend action and comedy in his lead roles. And so it's possible they'd have perhaps made him funnier and closer to Jaws if they were to make, you know, have him in a film now as a Bond henchman. Yeah, and it's interesting how that profile's changed as well. I mean, one of the other great elements where Hinks is involved is obviously the the chase through the um the Austrian Alps obviously where um they kidnap Madeline Swan um, and obviously you're doing that great chase sequence through the you know the narrowing trees and you get that suspense of you know will the plane fit through the gaps and there's that great sense of, of threat in that sequence, I think. But what I like about it is, is that it's sort of very imaginative. It's a ski chase without anyone doing real skiing. But also it's the real spectacle of it. It's the fact that these are genuine cars that they're sending down the mountain. That's an actual plane that he's smashing up and driving down it. And we can in now, in the age of extensively heavy use of CGI in blockbusters, we can become slightly, I guess, desensitised to that real spectacle and just how awesome and jaw-dropping it is. And I think the same thing actually about the car chase in Rome is it's a gorgeously looking set piece it's the stunt work of pure car driving but also loads of comedy laced into it the fact that none of Q's gadgets work on the Aston they just play New York New York the fact that you know Bond has to sort of drive up the bumper of a guy in a little Fiat who looks absolutely terrified and of course the fact that you get that banter with Moneypenny who he's completely disturbed with a companion so yeah I, I really like the action sequences in this film and they're doing something different to you know, copying the Bourne-style very fast action sequences or doing the CGI heavy sequences. It feels more Bondian. Yeah, I do agree, Adam. I do like the Rome chase. I think that is um, a real great mix of sort of humour and action, obviously, as you said, with, with the actual stunt work as well. 
Um, so I think that is a credit to the film, actually. It kind of, it felt very reflective of a uh, kind of Roger Moore or Pierce Brosnan style um, action sequence. Well, yeah, and as the, the live and let die fanboy that I am, I enjoyed the uh, the plane losing its wings a la Mrs. Bell. Perhaps uh, he should have gone through saying, holy shit, shouldn't he, as he, as he goes down that mountain. The expansiveness of that scene contrasts really brilliantly with our first scene in Austria when we have that confrontation with Mr. White as well, which feels incredibly cold and bleak, uh, you know, and we really get the sense of loneliness of the spy. You know, it's almost Bond looking into his own future when he sees what has become of Mr. White. Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, I think at the end of Quantum of Solace, they were going to have the scene, weren't they, of uh, Bond taking out Mr. White. But I'm glad that, uh, that they didn't include that so that he can come back here and we get a nicer a nicer ending for that character bond kind of being on his side really at the end and uh, and as blofeld mentioned is the uh, the perhaps the only woman who can understand him is the the daughter of an assassin so it nicely it does nicely link those uh, those two stories together i think he's he's almost seen the light in a sense he's, he's seen what specter is um in terms of the evil behind it and he's now kind of he's ready to cooperate with Bond, but obviously this kind of, his time is limited anyway, so he may as well protect his family and, and just try and cut his losses on there. So I, th- I think that is a really emotive scene as well between Bond and uh, Mr. White. Yeah, and it is almost the only scene that the film ultimately would have needed to tie this film into the other three. It does bring us on to to Madeleine Swan, and there was something about this character which I really loved and appreciated this time and hadn't spotted before, in terms of actually what makes her different from the other two Bond women, specifically Tracy and Vesper, who've gotten under Bond's skin and have formed a deeper relationship with him, which is that actually she is symbolic of the fact that Bond actually can escape this life. You know, this inevitable tragic path that he's been on since childhood and sort of admits to on the train saying, I don't think I had any choice in this. Actually, she is proof that having been born into that life, you can run away from it. You can leave it behind. She has successfully abandoned it when Bond finds her. And so she's symbolic of, I guess, him having hope of a different future and a different life for himself. Again, I I wonder whether they they could have spent more time developing the relationship between Bond and Swan. Obviously, I hasten to compare it to Casino Royale, but obviously, you know, with the amount of time that Vespa Lind and Bond spend together, you know, that, that relationship that builds from that. I'm not sure whether Swan and Bond build that same rapport, but obviously, as we'll see eventually when No Time to Die is released, obviously that will progress in that plot. You do get that really nice touching moment where obviously Bond is being tortured by Blofeld, and, and even though Madeline Swan has seen the, the video of the father and Bond interacting, she still sort of goes to him and, and says, you know, I love you, and that's kind of the the key point where Bond kind of remembers and he's, and he's able to press the detonator on the watch. Yeah, I don't think it was not obviously not as uh, impressive as Bond's relationship with Vesper Lind, but I think it was still quite a good one. I think uh, he certainly has a, a type, doesn't he? A very perceptive woman, very intelligent. I was, uh, I was kind of imagining what would have happened if, uh, if Tiffany Case was in that interrogation room and he's saying uh, Tempest Fugit and she's like, what, what? <laughs> And it just explode in their face if it was her. Or he hands her Tiffany Casey exploding watch and instead of slinging it under Blofeld's desk, she just shoves it down her bikini bottoms. 
that the character whose arc she sort of comes to perfect is that of Camille, weirdly, in, in Quantum of Solace. And that Tangier's hotel scene is where that, that becomes obvious, in that, like Bond, she's someone who has demons in her past. They are both very damaged characters. And so it is through taking Solace together and helping one another exorcise the demons in their past, they are able to build to this kind of sense of mutual relief. They are able to get each other you know, over finally the darkness that that lies within. Yeah, and I think the the character works quite well for the uh, the ending of the story as well, doesn't it? Of course, at that time they're not sure whether Daniel Craig will continue and do a fifth film, which of course he did, uh, but they're not sure whether that could have been the ending for his tenure, couldn't it? So that's the, it seems to fit quite nicely with Madeline Swan's character that it is his escape out of this world, and he's chosen to uh, to not take the ultimate revenge on Blofeld and decides to choose love instead. What a nice, a nice Disney ending for the, the film. Uh, so I guess uh, it kind of might link together with what we said in previous episodes about Bond being the, the moral crusader, Bond linking together with Britain. Some people have criticised it for that uh, and that he should not have spared Blofeld at the end. Uh, but I think it does, it matches together quite nicely with the Madeline's character arc. I think the other thing to quickly mention about Swan is that she really hates Bond at first. I mean, you know, more so even than Vespa Linda's, who's just generally a bit haughty and unimpressed with his boyishness. She screams at him. She's incredibly reluctant to be anywhere near him. And, and you know, in, in a quite coquettish way, teases him, you know, when they're in the hotel in Tangiers. Oh, two Jameses, lucky me. I like the, uh, the little link, perhaps, with the, the first Bond woman as well of uh, Honey Rider, if you remember when she's talking to Bond, she mentions that she takes out a man who is trying to take advantage of her. And that's kind of similar when she, uh, when Madeline mentions that she, she took out one of the, uh, the assassins who'd come to kill her father. Uh, so I thought perhaps a, a little bit of a link there as well. Of course, Madeline's character, much less naive, I would say, than, uh, than Honey Rider. But uh, there's kind of a, even though she's a, a different character, there's, it's nice we get a kind of thread throughout these, uh, these female characters in Bond. What do we think of the other Bond woman in this, Lucia Schiara? Because um, there was a big, you know, excitement when Monica Bellucci was cast, not just because she's one of Europe's most celebrated art house actresses, but also because finally we're sort of seeing a more age-appropriate love interest for Bond. Um, I was ultimately a bit disappointed by how underused she was um, in this. I don't know if, um, if you guys would agree with that. I think it was a great choice to have a more mature actress in the role. I think it kind of harks back to Octopussy where we saw Maud Adams and Roger Moore and that great chemistry there. So I think it was a great idea to have that, but yeah, they could have done a lot more with that sequence and they could have probably, um, you know, used that character more in the actual storyline. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I think uh, it would have been nice to see her in, in more scenes utilised better in the uh, in the plot. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed that scene with the, the kind of... Uh, opera music in the background as she's walking through her home and Bond just uh, silently takes out the uh, the two assassins who've come for her. Uh, I guess that's one of the scenes, I guess if Mark Forster had done that scene, I'd be attacking it for saying how pretentious and annoying it is. But, uh, but I congratulate Sam Mendes on, uh, on quite a, an excellent scene there. I'm not sure whether sending Felix to help her, is that a great idea, given his, his track record in the last 23 films or however many uh, he's appeared in? Uh, but yeah, I'd go. I think a uh, great performance by Monica Bellucci. And uh, I know that some of the Bond fans were disappointed she wasn't cast as Paris Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, but uh, as we've mentioned in, in the Tomorrow Never Dies episode, I think 
that tension between Brosnan and uh, and Terry Hatcher actually quite worked quite well for that that uh, that story. Uh, so it's nice to see Monica Bellucci eventually, though, in uh, in Bond. Certainly that scene that she does get, um, and like kind of Severin, we were saying in the last film, she is treated to one of the best scenes in the film, even though she's quite a disposable character. Like you've said with this, it, it's such a great example of how Mendes blocks his film visually and accomplishes everything in terms of the storytelling in these single shots. The fact that we have, just after the assassins have been dropped, that very slight movement to one side of the camera, and you just see the blur of Bond, who's been right behind her the whole time, and then Craig just moves forward into the shot and into focus. You signed my death warrant. I was respected. Loyal to a man you hated. He trusted my silence. With him gone, I'm a dead woman. I can trust nobody. You know the feeling well. Well, I can tell you that I don't trust you. Well, then you have impeccable instincts. If you don't leave now, we'll die together. I can think of worse ways to go. Ben, you're obviously crazy, Mr. Bond. James Bond. It's interesting, obviously, we've, we've mentioned a lot of the kind of key characters that have been, um, you know, pivotal to the plot inspector. It's quite nice for me to see that they've actually um, used Tanner, um, Q and Moneypenny a lot more in, in this film. You know, they're, they're kind of a lot more pivotal to the to the final outcome of the film, um, particularly in the end. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think that it's good that we get more of the kind of peripheral characters are used um, more widely in this film? Yeah, I always enjoy it when uh, when Bond is kind of working together with the usual uh, MI6 team. Um, and I quite like that we get Q out in the field as well. Presumably his, uh, he's overcome his fear of flying from the, uh, the previous film uh, and he gets out there to, uh, to Austria. Um, so, I mean, they were kind of, um, we haven't been able to establish the kind of relationship that we did with Desmond Llewellyn's Q, uh, but you still feel a sense, there's a greater sense of tension, isn't there, that Q is out in the field uh, and that he is in some danger until he eventually manages to uh, uh, to squeeze his way through all of those uh, those skiers. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I have to say, when I first saw this in the cinema, I was incredibly frightened for Q when he was in that cable car and the henchmen start piling in, because, of course, in the previous film, they did do the unthinkable and killed off M. And so you're thinking, well, Ben Whishaw's very in demand and he's, he's not so about the money that he needs to stay in this franchise very long. Maybe they're going to really shock us and actually bump off Q. But what's great about him is he's, he's really... He's built a lot of comedy into that character by building in that real love-hate relationship with Bond, which is, of course classic cue but here it's it's the fact that he's being forced to cover for bond and so as this kind of geeky anorak is doubly stressed out at the fact that he's losing all of these gadgets and this guy's gone rogue but also he now feels obliged to cover for him um but yeah i think it's one of the things that i enjoy most about the true finale set in heroic london london given a great glorious role just as it was in skyfall the fact that all of the mi6 sort of characters are brought into it even to the extent that money penny isn't even allowed to drive the car in it even though Though she's a former active field agent instead who's driving that car it's good old bill tanner well, yeah, he needs something to do doesn't he <laughs> i can't remember what, what other lines he has in this one i think he explains he does a bit of exposition doesn't he for uh for max demby's character uh but uh, yeah it's, it's good to have bill there even if his his role is a little bit reduced <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a great look that um, Rory Kinnear gives when he is driving and, and they take out the front car, which, which even Bond isn't allowed to drive that one. I mean, Mallory M is driving that one. And then when uh, Moneypenny just yells at him, reverse, reverse. And Rory Kinnear's just doing a bit of, oh, no, no, it's all kicking off. Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> they say, uh, they've seen us. Well, of course they've seen you. I mean, come on, get out of there. Yeah, it's really lovely. And actually, it's as good as the, the confrontation between Bond and Blofeld is, um, the one between M&C and in that sort of glossy building with Q sort of tapping into the mainframe is just as good, actually. We talked last week about the fact that there are a lot of celebrated hamlets in this film. Andrew Scott is actually another one and the most recent of all of them. And he and Fines really sell that sort of slimy confrontation. In a sense, he is kind of the Grey paradox fulfilled. We always talked about Frederick Grey, you know, not wanting MI6 to go after all of these villains. Now, indeed, the political animal is the villain. He's, he's in cahoots with them. So it's finally come full circle. Uh, I would have liked to, as usual, I always like to bring it back to the pyramids in some way, kind of reminiscent of uh, Sandor's death in The Spy Who Loved Me. And I, personally, I would have liked to have seen M like push him rather than it was a bit of a pathetic fall, wasn't it? In general, the uh, the character of C was a, a, a snivelling little weasel, wasn't he? And he gets a snivelling death. And uh, I would have liked to have seen M actually actively kill him. I'd have quite liked to have seen Dame Judy Dench just shove someone off a, a tall building. I mean, with a, with a little comedy quip as well. I'll tell you for why, then just shoves him. We also, of course, in both of those sequences, in, in this helicopter boat chase on the Thames and, and previously when we sent up Spectre's base in, I think the biggest explosion that had ever been attempted on film, just talking about the expense and the spectacle of the film. But Bond brilliantly seems to have recovered his marksmanship skill from Skyfall. I mean, he famously couldn't shoot for Toffee in that. Now he is the craziest good shot I've ever seen. It does go a bit yeah. video game, doesn't it? In this one, but he's playing on the the agent or the new recruit difficulty of those video games. I was about to say, do you think that Mallory slash M has now got him actually uh, booked his ideas up? Is you know, he probably could let a lot of stuff slide when it used to be Judy Dench. You know, she probably didn't really need him to be a sharpshooter. But do you get the feeling that the new M is now uh, kicking him into shape a little bit more? But of course, it also works, you know, after everything M&C have been talking about, you know, the fact that Bond as a 00 agent is still needed in this new age of su surveillance and, and all the rest of it. And of course, there's the symbolism of the old MI6 building collapsing, but Bond still speeding out of it in a speedboat because he might be a relic of that old world, but he is still needed. And it's still him as the lone hero who is the last line of defence when all else seems lost. I mean, I would have liked to have uh, cut back to Desmond Llewellyn perhaps saying, oh, no, it isn't finished yet, as, they, as they're going out through the, the speedboat. <laughs> or using using the exact same hole in the building that uh, Brosnan uses. <laughs> Although I do quite like the uh, the secret, the little interplay between Q and Bond when he's, um, he's brought back the, uh, the, the DB5 and obviously saying, I, I asked you to bring it back in one piece, not bring back one piece. So there is that great little interplay that started again. So I do hope they continue with that moving forwards, also with Ben Wishore as, as kind of new cue. Can you swim? Okay, so let's now head over to the cars and gadgets section. So what do we have this week, Phil? Some rather special cars, don't we? Elusive cars. 
I think uh, I read somewhere that there's only 10 of those uh, DB10s. Do, do you own one, Phil? Sadly not. Interestingly enough, the uh, the two of the DB10s actually went up for auction in 2016, um, and one was sold for, uh, I believe it was £2.4 million. Um, so it was kind of quite a lucrative deal for Aston Martin. So, yeah, thanks, Martin. So just to go into um, the cars and gadgets for this week, we, we have quite an unusual... Um, lineup because Aston Martin and Jaguar Land Rover both had agreements with the um, the producers for this film. Um, and Martin, as you mentioned, the um, the Aston Martin DB10 was a one-off kind of prototype, really, that they built 10 versions um, for filming, eight of which were used in the stunt sequences um, in Rome uh, for the filming of that. We also see the Jaguar CX-75. Now, this is kind of the spiritual successor to Jaguar's XJ220 from the uh, late 80s and early 90s. Again, for many years, Jaguar have had this kind of design philosophy where they've launched different concepts that have, have kind of tried to showcase where their, their thinking is going to be in the future. The CX-75 was kind of one of those, but it was developed in partnership with Williams F1 Engineering, um, and they did hope to build kind of 250 of them um, for production. In the end, that never happened. We saw that car first appear at the Paris Motor Show in 2010. Um, but due to the financial crisis and, you know, kind of ongoing financial issues, Jaguar pulled the plug on the entire project in 2012. So we see them take up the chase through the streets of Rome. Um, instantly, this sequence was filmed um, using two stunt drivers. So one was former British rally champion Mark Higgins, um, and the other was, um, as we mentioned in the previous episode, the former Stig Ben Collins. So this was all done for real through the streets of Rome. They actually closed the Vatican City so that they could do the big power slides through the um, through the cobbled streets. Moving on to the second chase that we see, obviously in the um, the mountains of Austria. This was obviously Jag uh, Jaguar Land Rover's opportunity to showcase their, um, their ever-present kind of long wheelbase Land Rover Defender and the, um, the Range Rover Sport, at which point was brand new at this point in time. We also get the Omega Seamaster 300 watch, which obviously Omega have had a long-term partnership with the Bond franchise. And this showcases the exploding detonator, which Bond uses to destroy Blofeld's um, sort of secret lair. So that's a really, really quick run through the sort of cars and gadgets from Spectre. Phil, I, I have a theory, and I wonder if you'll, you'll back this up at all, which is that apart from his own Aston Martin DB5, James Bond doesn't really like Aston Martins very much because he does just seem to want to smash them up or like drop them into the Tiber at the very first opportunity he gets most of the time. Well, it's interesting you should mention that because it almost seems like the production team don't like Aston Martins very much either because it's estimated that they destroyed up to £24 million worth of cars in this film just by all the stunts. So it seems like an eye-watering amount of damage to do to such precious cars, really. Do you think maybe uh, one of the choreographers of the car stunts was just Jeremy Clarkson and that he just didn't like this particular Aston Martin, so walked in one Monday morning and said, hmm, this is a rubbish car, so we're going to destroy as many of them as we can. I'd like to see Clarkson as a, as a Bond villain, perhaps, along the lines of Elliot Carver. He just, just owns Amazon, who are going to take over the whole world. My space laser is the best space laser in the world. And then Hammond's just there as his sort of yappy little henchman. Well, I think we should also put this out to the cubbies as well. Come, please come back to us and let us know of all the uh, Top Gear 
cast that have been before, you know, James May, The Stig, Richard Hammond and Jeremy Clarkson, who would you have in what position and, and let us know why? Can we have Paddy McGuinness as Scaramanga? Let the man see the golden gun! Yeah, moving swiftly on, we'll uh, we'll go to Beyond the Book. <laughs> Over to you, Adam. So in Beyond the Book this week, I thought we'd look at the music of James Bond. We've touched on it briefly, um, but specifically we'll do it this week because Sam Smith's song, The Writing on the Wall, was actually the first Bond theme to reach number one in the UK charts. It's since been followed by Billie Eilish's No Time to Die, which is also the first UK number one from an artist born in the 21st century. So that is a future pub quiz question waiting to happen. Sam Smith also won the series' second consecutive Oscar for Best Song after Adele's uh, Oscar for Skyfall. The other Bond themes nominated for the Oscar are Live and Let Die by Paul McCartney and Wings, Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon, Fior Eyes Only by Sheena Easton, and if you count it, Burt Bacharach's The Look of Love from Casino Royale. Uh, a View to a Kill by Duran Duran, still the only Bond theme to reach number one in the US charts, though, so still untouched at that record. I want to talk very briefly about the Bond theme because uh, we haven't talked about it before and it is of course the iconic piece of Bond music. Its authorship between Monty Norman and John Barry has been disputed twice in the courts and so officially Monty Norman composed it by merging the dum diddy dum dum of the song Good Sign Bad Sign from the musical A House for Mr Biz Was from the V.S. Naipaul novel and he combined that with Softly which is a Henry Mancini track from the CBS TV series Mr Lucky and if you do listen to both of those songs it's alarming at just how close to plagiarism Monty Norman gets. Of course, where John Barry comes in is that his jazz band, the John Barry Seven, orchestrated the iconic version of the song that we all know. John Barry, of course, remains the most prolific Bond film composer. He scored 11 of the films and, of course, the 007 theme, our theme tune, which I think still its last appearance was in Moonraker during the uh, sort of speedboat chase in the Amazon in Brazil. Uh, he's followed by David Arnold, who are very much seen as his spiritual successor, who's composed by five Bond themes, as well as the album Shaken and Stirred, the David Arnold James Bond project. Uh, we've talked about this briefly before, but this is his sort of compilation of a load of guest artists re-recording sort of modernised versions of classic Bond songs, two of which charted in the UK, the Propeller Heads with their version of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, which reached number seven, and David McCalmont's version of Diamonds Are Forever reached number 39. Uh, other interesting tracks from that album include All Time High, as reimagined by Pulp, Live and Let Die, as reimagined by Chrissy Hind, Iggy Pop's version of We Have All the Time in the World, and not on the album, but pretty fascinating, You Only Live Twice, as interpreted by Bjork. Uh, secondary songs have been an important part of Bond uh, music ever since Three Blind Mice and Jump Up Jamaica in Dr. No, the most famous of which is probably We Have All the Time in the World, which actually in 1994 also charted. It reached number three in the UK after appearing on a Guinness advert. And John Barry always said that this was his favourite uh, of his own compositions and uh, always treasured the opportunity to work with Louis Armstrong. In terms of unused Bond songs, which is a very interesting rabbit hole to go down if you really want to, some of my personal favourites would be Johnny Cash's version of Thunderball, Alice Cooper's version of The Man with the Golden Gun, 
Blondie's version of For Your Eyes Only, the Pet Shop Boys' version of The Living Daylights, uh, Pulp and San Etienne's version of Tomorrow Never Dies, and indeed uh, the Ace of Bass song, The Juvenile, which was originally going to be the theme for Goldeneye. Uh, and to bring it all uh, full circle and back to Spectre, of course, Radiohead uh, produced a rejected Bond theme to Spectre, which is also very worth a listen. It gets a very similar tone to what Sam Smith ultimately achieves. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Adam. So I was wondering, actually, do you think the New York, New York, the Sinatra song, was it in there as a, a small link to the uh, the titles of the bonds that haven't been used yet? Of course, we have Hildebrand. They have the name of the uh, the safe house. Uh, so I guess New York perhaps linking with the other title that's unused so far. Yes, of course, 007 in New York. Uh, that's entirely possible. It might also call back to Blofeld's hatred of marching band music explored in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Had we, uh, Phil, Phil, are you still blowing the trumpet for uh, the song that we all hated? Are we going back to the experience of love by any chance? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot to mention the experience of love. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, thanks a lot. So uh, we'll move on now to my segment, which is Now I Know You. Now! That secret agent, that English secret agent from England. Now, this segment is where I look through the uh, the callbacks to previous Bond films. Uh, so there are, of course, uh, a number of ones that we've uh, already touched on, but uh, I'll go through some of my favourite ones, and we'll see if uh, Adam and Phil uh, have any others. Uh, so, of course, the the movie uh, this movie does share several shooting locations as the uh, the Living Daylights. We get Tangier in Morocco, London, uh, and Austria. Uh, we get Bond wearing his white tuxedo, uh, which, of course, he's done in previous installments. Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, perhaps the most uh, famous example, but also Man with the Golden Gun, Octopussy, and A View to a Kill. The, uh, the train fight that we get in this scene, of course, reminiscent of previous train fights with uh, Red Grant, Teehee, uh, and Jaws. Uh, Bond does have a fairly dreadful record, as we know, as protecting the women in his life. But uh, interestingly, this film uh, is the first one since License to Kill, 1989, uh, where neither of the two leading Bond girls die. And it is the, uh, the third time in the history of the franchise uh, in which the, uh, the actress playing the leading Bond girl is older than the Bond actor. Uh, so the other ones being uh, Honor Blackman in Goldfinger and uh, Diana Rigg in On Her Majesty's. And of course, the, the biggest callback in this film is the uh, the rights that we finally get back, Eon, uh, of Blofeld and Spectre. Uh, so we haven't seen Blofeld officially since uh, uh, For Your Eyes Only, although he wasn't called Blofeld in that one. Of course, he was just man in wheelchair. So uh, completely officially, it's the first time we see Blofeld since Diamonds Are Forever. And uh, we also get the return of Blofeld's uh, kind of penchant for uh, the Nehru collarless jackets as well. Uh, so most of his appearances in the Bond franchise, he is wearing a uh, very, very similar type of clothing. Uh, in terms of uh, linking it together with uh, older style Bond as well, we get uh, the, the ejector seat of the Aston Martin, Bond ejecting himself uh, this time inspector rather than uh, ejecting uh, someone else. And uh, interestingly, we, of course, we get the same director, Sam Mendes, um, from Skyfall. Uh, so we do get a couple of uh, quite interesting links together with Skyfall. Uh, so we, Judy Dench does appear in this film in her video message. And uh, interestingly, she's wearing exactly the same clothes uh, and is in the same place as we see her in Skyfall when she's uh, clicking on some of uh, Silver's links. Perhaps she 
she shouldn't be clicking on. Uh, so it's exactly so we can assume that uh, the, the message that she leaves Bond is recorded directly after uh, that scene. Of course, the, uh, the Royal Dalton Bulldog also makes uh, a return. And uh, the painting that the art dealers are selling in Shanghai, uh, if you remember, across the way from where Bond uh, fights Patrice, uh, that reappears in uh, Madeleine Swan's room at the Spectre base. Uh, so if you're a very eagle-eyed viewer, you'll notice it's exactly the same artwork as the one in Shanghai in Skyfall. So uh, those were some of the, uh, the the more intriguing links back. I'm not sure if uh, Adam and Phil, did you have uh, any others? Uh, that's interesting about the painting. Of course, that goes all the way back to Dr. No, when famously the stolen Goya painting of the Duke of Wellington turns up in Dr. No's base. I also, in the sort of plane chase in the mountain, there's an interesting little um, subversion of that moment in The Spy Who Loved Me when uh, Naomi is pursuing Bond in the car in the helicopter and gives him a little wink. In this sequence, it's the other way around, isn't it? Bond's in the plane uh, and Hinks is in the car and it's Bond who gives him a little wink before uh, he opens fire on him. Okay, so we'll head over now to the questions branch what questions do we have this week phil answer my questions quietly but clearly jake got in touch with us um on our uh, email account so this isn't a bond question itself but it actually um opens up an interesting debate so jake asked us if we had the choice of either a sunday dinner with uh, custard or a treacle sponge with gravy and we could only choose one of those to eat in the future, which one would we have? I think I'd probably plump for the uh, the Sunday dinner with custard, I think. But what do you guys think? No, I think I'd go the the other. What was the other option, Phil? So you'd go treacle sponge with gravy? Yeah, because the uh, the gravy might not overpower the uh, the actual the treacle. Whereas uh, if you go custard on the entire Sunday roast, your entire Sunday roast is gone. It's ruined by the custard flavour. Yeah, I'm entirely with Martin on this one. Also, the Sunday roast is bigger. There's more of it to get through. The treacle sponge, yeah, the flavours of the sponge would not over be completely overpowered by the gravy, and there's less of it. Uh, Jake did also have an actual Bond question, didn't he? We should probably answer that one. But no, Jake also did have um, a Bond question, and that was, if we could pick any gadgets from the Bond films, which one would it be, and what would we use it for? So I was having a quick think about this. I'd... To be honest, it probably would be one of the cars. I'd probably have the Aston Martin V8 Vantage from The Living Daylights, just because it's kind of, it's in itself, it's one big gadget fest. And I'd, I'd just use it on, you know, the morning commute to blow things up, probably, just when people will get a bit of road rage and just, you know, set fire the rocket launches at people or, uh, you know, overtake and use the lasers to, to burn people's uh, cars in half, I think would be my, my strategy. I would have Q's fake third nipple from the man with the golden gun to freak everyone out at the swimming pool and give my fiance a nice little surprise. I think well, I did have an answer prepared, but it's gone out of my head after Adam's mentioned his uh, exciting nipple time. <laughs> okay, so so the last question this week is quite an interesting one. Um, so it actually came from a, a news article. Apparently, um, a man watched Die Another Day um, every week for six months. So the question is, if you could pick any film to any Bond film to watch for the next six months, which one would it be? Well, I'm always in the mood for Goldfinger, so I'd go Goldfinger. I'm not sure. Was there a reason why this guy chose specifically Die Another Day? Did he just really enjoy it? 
No, he didn't. He just kind of ended up doing it as a bit of a joke and kind of to kind of, you know, up his spirits during lockdown. So he just thought it'd be a kind of funny thing to do. I actually wouldn't go for one of the ones I really like and, and that I can watch a lot of the time. I'd go for something like Diamonds Are Forever because I'm not going to overwatch it to the extent that I suddenly ruin it for myself because I don't think it's particularly good anyway. But it is funny enough that it would probably be consistently entertaining over the 26 weeks. So I'd probably go for that one. So that's it's quite interesting you should mention that Adam because um for me I think I'd probably pick a view to a kill just because it's so silly you know you don't actually have to concentrate on it it's just because there's so many ridiculous points you, you can just sort of have it on in the background and it's uh, it's kind of a welcoming companion even when you're uh, feeling a bit down I think so it's, it's not one to concentrate on but it's one that you kind of can enjoy as a guilty pleasure I think. Um, so that was this week's Q branch. So thank you to everybody for your questions, suggestions, and theories. Please do keep sending them, keep sending them in to us. Um, we always do appreciate your interactions. Um, and as we've already mentioned earlier in the podcast, you can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our Gmail account. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. And it is right back to you for the uh, the quiz, the final segment of this week's episode. No, 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 no! Stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! I don't really know how to introduce this. All I can really say is S-P-E-C-T-R-E. Find out what it means to me, Spectre. So because Spectre is an anagram of respect from Aretha Franklin. What was that? If you never, never, well, I hope you're awake now, first of all. But if you never knew, Spectre is, of course, an anagram of respect. Um, The late, great Aretha Franklin made that so famous with one of her hits. So this week, it's a music quiz. This is um, basically lyrics from Bond songs. All you have to do is tell me the Bond film that they appeared in. Now, for the first two, I'm going to basically sing them to you because I don't want to breach copyrights. For the rest, though, I'm just going to say them to you so they get gradually harder. So, Adam, you're going first. Martin, you're going second. There are five questions each. Are we ready? So, Adam, question one. Learner strikes like thunderbolt. I have to say which film that's from. Yeah, so the first question is very easy. It's from Thunderball. Correct. Because you sang Thunderball. Yes, correct. So that's one to Adam. Right, so Martin, your first one. Goldfinger, he's the man, the man with the mildest touch. Why was that like a Cockney rendition? (laughs) It's Goldfinger. There you go, one to Martin, correct. They're not really questions in in the strictest sense at the moment, are they, (laughs) Phil? No, but they will get harder, right, because I'm not going to sing them anymore. Right, Adam, question two. This is the end, hold your breath and count to ten. That is from Skyfall. It is Adele with Skyfall, so that's two to Adam. Martin, question two. The coldest blood runs through my veins. It's You Know My Name. It is the late Chris Cornell with You Know My Name, so that's two to Martin. Adam, question three. Please don't bet that you'll ever escape me once I get my sights on you. Got a license to kill. Correct. So that's three out of three for Adam. Martin, question three. Where has everybody gone? Is that the question or is that just you musing on what's happened as this <laughs> quiz has gone on? No, that is the actual question. That is, that's all you're getting, Martin. Where has everybody gone? Not sure I know this one. I'll guess for your eyes only. 
No, it was it was actually the Living Daylights. It was the Pretenders. Um, where has everybody gone? So that was used when Necros um, murders the Milkman. Yeah, it's the one song on Necros's Walkman, isn't it? Okay, so that's that's one off for Marta. So you you've only got two right so far. So Adam, to, to take a bigger lead for question four, darling, I'm killed. I'm in a puddle on the floor. I think that's Tomorrow Never Dies, isn't it? It is. That's Cheryl Crow with Tomorrow Never Dies. So Adam takes a big lead. So Martin, you now need to get this one to stay in it. So question four, people like us know how to survive. There's no point in living if you can't feel the life. That one's The World Is Not Enough. Correct. That was garbage with The World Is Not Enough. So Martin, you're back up to three. So Adam, if you get question five, you've won it anyway. Question number five, Earth's crystal tears fall and snowflakes on your body. Yeah, that's a, a view to a kill, Duran Duran. Correct, it is indeed a view to a kill with Duran Duran. So Adam, you've won this week's quiz with five out of five, so you get to choose our closing song. Well, I thought I'd go for something more general to celebrate the fact that we have now reached the end of the official Bond film series. So let's have Scouting for Girls and I Wish I Was James Bond. Okay, that's a great choice, Adam. So uh, that's the uh, brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks for joining us in the cubby hole for our review of Spectre, and indeed for our twenty three previous previous reviews as well. Uh, we've had a great run. You might be asking if we're going to leave with dignity. Well, no, to hell with dignity. We'll leave when the job's done, and it isn't quite done yet. Still, a few unofficial Bond adventures to review, and then on to a new chapter, season two of Roger Moore's Cubby Hole to come. So uh, we'll see you in the next couple of weeks as we review Casino Royale, the 1967 version. Uh, but in the meantime, do check out our social media pages. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. I've seen you on the screen. It's you that I adore. Since I was a boy, I wanted to be like Roger Moore. A girl in every port and gadgets on my sleeve. The world is not enough for the both. I wish I was James Bond Just for the day Kissing all the girls Blow the bad guys away And I wish I was James Bond Just for the day Kissing all the girls Blow the bad guys away Paddy McGuinness as Hugo Drax Let the moon see the raker No likey, no likey You can't, you can't reach the button, Herger Herve. Who was that an impression on? <laughs> no one, you can delete it. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. That's Adam more like Alan Bennett. It's just like, what was that going for? <laughs> yeah, it did. Alan <laughs> Bennett as Nick. Alan Bennett. I think often about the old people I used to know back in the day. Scaramanga, long dead. Mary Goodnight lived here for a time, but very briefly. I didn't much care for Scaramanga. He never liked me gypsy creams. <laughs> <laughs>